We would like to acknowledge the Yuggera people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mianjin, the lands on which we record this podcast today. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to For the Health of It, a podcast made for healthcare professionals by a nurse on the inside. So my name is Jess Tully and I'm the brand ambassador and also a registered nurse myself with Healthcare Australia. So today I got to interview Dr. Ben Bravery. He is the author of the book, The Patient Doctor. Now, if you've not listened to this book, I highly recommend getting online and grabbing a copy because it honestly is incredible, especially if you're a healthcare worker listening to this podcast. You can definitely relate to a lot of the things that he's mentioned in this book. So when he was 28 he got diagnosed with bowel cancer it's a very young age to be diagnosed with this and it was quite a shock for him and his family of course he goes into the journey of not only going through bowel cancer in terms of chemotherapy radiation the surgery but he really dived into talking about the interactions that he had with the healthcare staff so doctors in particular but also the nursing staff too He noticed that there was quite a gap when it came to patient care, when it came to the doctor and patient relationship. Uh, He really felt such a strong urge that he needed to change. He needed to change something in the medical world. And so after he had healed up from his diagnosis and was getting better, he actually decided to change his life and become a doctor himself and to help that doctor-patient relationship. Since then, not only is he a doctor himself, but he's decided to put this book out and also speaking at all these conferences and he's trying to push everyone into that right direction to let people understand that there is so much that needs to change in terms of communication, treating people on a human to human level and giving that empathy with people in the healthcare system. Because not only has he seen it as a patient himself, but now he sees it on the other side as a doctor. It really was incredible and such an eye opener myself as a nurse. And I really can't wait for you guys to listen to it. So here we're going to dive into this episode now. Bye. All right, finally is now the time that we have Dr. Ben Bravery with us today. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. I've been really looking forward to this and I have been loving your book, The Patient Doctor. It has been amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It was definitely a big eye-opener into the medical world. Um, I would love, I know that our audience, some of them might have not actually read this book yet. Um, and I know that after this episode, they're definitely going to jump online <laughs> and get the book. But in, in, your own, um, in your own words, could you just explain to us a little bit, a bit more about The Patient Doctor? I sure can. It came out in July last year and at that stage I was four years out of medical school Um, and I kind of, it was the right time to pull my ideas together about um, having been sick and going through med school and then training as a doctor and I mean the big picture here is that I didn't start life wanting to be a doctor. It was kind of thrust upon me after a cancer diagnosis when I was 28. I had this whole other life and career as a zoologist, actually, studying wildlife. And that had taken me to Beijing, uh, where I was working for the Chinese government and then started my own business in kind of zoological communications. And then got really sick, Um, had a colonoscopy uh, back in Melbourne, found a whopping great big tumor that pulled my life apart very quickly. I was sucked out of everything that I knew 
and I had 18 months of treatment after which I was given the all clear, which is amazing and was spat back into my old world, re- realizing that things were a bit different for me now. So yeah. not only, you know, was I scarred and did I have, you know, peripheral neuropathy from the chemotherapy, not only was I mindful of coagulation, having had PEs, um, something had shifted inside me in terms of values and what I wanted to do with myself in the world. And so it took me a little while to work it out after going back to some jobs and, you know, fumbling around that I wanted to go back into healthcare. And I decided to go and do that at the doctor level. And so I took myself off to med school. And the patient doctor is about these two worlds. You know, there's a lot of books about doctors and nurses who get sick and then realize what it's like. Um, I went into medical school having been sick. So I got it from day one and my eyes filtered everything through a patient perspective. I learned pathology through a patient perspective. I learned anatomy. I learned teamwork through a patient perspective, having been an observer of it, a passive recipient of it for all that time. And um, the book's done The book's done okay. I would say most of your listeners probably haven't read it yet because it's just kind of bubbling away on the surface. But it's had a really good reception, um, particularly amongst nurses, because I think a lot of the things I'm saying, which is basically um, the human side of healthcare is often lacking, not for any particular individual's fault or responsibility, but because of the system. Nurses have been saying this for decades. And I think they, they find it rather refreshing that a doctor <laughs> is saying the exact same thing and supporting them in their mission 100%. Yeah, that's exactly my takeaway from this book as well. As a nurse, I was like, he gets it. Like, he actually gets it. <laughs> um, mm, yeah. You know, be, being a patient advocate is the number one for nurses always. And it is obviously mm. supposed to be for doctors too, but you guys have so much going on. Um, seeing it on the other side, what a, what a crazy world that would have been for you yeah it was it was it was it was um you mean having crossed over into yeah. medicine yeah, yeah yeah it was crazy I, I was just a little bit distracted by something you just said because I, I wanted to talk about that um I, we often say and you just did it um we often say oh it must be the same for doctors but or i i, it, I bet it's the same for doctors but they have I, I think a lot of the time actually we let doctors get away with that And we've kind of hidden behind this wall of busyness and the doctor's time is so much more important than anyone else's and their clinic time is is so much more important than anyone else's. And I I, I don't know, actually, and, and you know, maybe we'll talk about this during the podcast, but I worry that a, a lot of doctors' hearts aren't in the right place. And that's not a fault of theirs. It's got to do with some complex stuff that I write about in the book, like how we select them which high schools and postcodes we take from, how we train them, how we don't reward the things that nurses value and that patients value. We incentivize all this other skill. So I, I, would, I would say that most people go into healthcare. Most doctors go into healthcare for the right reasons, but they, they end up with all these poor behaviors and poor attitudes, I think that come about as a result of the system, which isn't always because they're busy. Sometimes the fundamentals just aren't properly communicated and properly instilled in doctors. So I just I just wanted to say that um, because I think I think for too long um, we've made excuses yeah. for why doctors can't do the kinds of things that a lot of other 
healthcare professionals do. And you'll know, Jess, the reason I'm on a rant about this is because sometimes when I speak at events, um, doctors will come up to me and say, oh, but you know, you can't possibly feel that much about your patients. You need distance. And I neutralize that comment instantly by saying, could you ever imagine saying that to a nurse? Wow. And they go, of course not. Of course I would. And I would say, what's the difference, right? What's yeah. the difference? So, so I think some of it is gendered, right? Because doctors have mostly been men and nurses have mostly been women. And we know women pick up the caring role across all of society, not just in healthcare. But we've let doctors off the hook for too long. And part of my book is a call to action, right? It's I want patients to hold doctors to account. I want doctors to hold patients to account. And I want healthcare workers, doctors and nurses to better understand each other. Oh, it just gets me excited hearing you talk like this, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Sorry, and I that... didn't really answer your question though. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I love it. And this is like why I really valued reading this book so much is because I was just like, wow, because it is, it's, it's the typical nursing role is the caring person and the one there for the patient and to talk them through things and give them reassurance. But why is it also very technical, that? Jess, right? Nursing is very technical. You're, you're doing calculations, you're running through algorithms, you're dispensing medications, which we have no idea what to do. You're drawing things up into precise quantities and you're making sure they get administered in safe ways. We can't, we can't, like nursing to me is the perfect blend of the technical and the human. Yeah. And then we're re-explaining to patients what the doctors aren't explaining. I like yeah. a bazillion times when the doctors do their rounds, I always make sure that I am in that patient room listening nice to everything the doctor's saying and then as soon as the doctor leaves i'll say what would you like me to re-explain to you yep. and that is yep. just a, a common thing that i do personally as a nurse but yeah. realistically yeah the patients are too nervous to kind of speak up mm -hmm. to say hey mm -hmm. i don't understand what that means or they're using technical mm. words things like that i just yeah i took so much out i took so much value from this book by what you're saying and i was like i need we need all the doctors to read this book i feel mm. Yeah, no, it, that's, that's, I mean, that would be my dream um, to reassure the nurses out there, um, nurses and midwives, um, uh, uh, one of the medical, medical legal insurers um, across the country just bought a thousand copies for interns. Oh, so, so good. they know they what they want to get in at that level, like in their first three months of being on the job, they want them to read this book. And they want them to read it because they understand that, you know, a lot of the medico legal stuff is about communication. Yeah. It's about nonverbal behavior. It's stuff that patients find very activating and very triggering. Yeah. And if you're just more self-aware and just more connected to the person in front of you, you will do a better job at those oh, things. Totally. So I, I think, so I think to your point, there is change underway, right? But, but it's slow. <laughs> it's never going to be overnight, unfortunately. But that already no. is such an amazing um, step into the right direction. So that's amazing. Mm. So thank you for that. <laughs> I think that's going to be incredible. <laughs> Even mm. just like simple things you're talking about, about, you know, going, on the, going to the patient's level when you're talking to them, having the name tags and having mm. so many doctors be against having their name shown. They didn't want mm. their name to be shown to the patient. Such a, even if it's just their first name, I found that so wild to, to know but mm. then I guess at the same time they don't want the blame they don't want the patient to go I want to speak to Dr. Ben now they don't want mm. that because mm. they have yeah. that mentality of I'm too busy I don't have time to re-explain that to the patient I totally and and also this idea that someone else will do it 
right? Yeah. That someone else will pick it up. The, the nurse who's thinking like you're thinking and lots of your listeners think that that, that important liaison role between patient and doctor. Yeah, the, the, thing you, the, the thing you're talking about, I write about in the book is uh, my very first job as an intern, they rolled out name badges, which I was so excited for. I was like, this is amazing. I got involved early on. Um, and then I realized that no one was wearing them and I had mine on every day. And I started to, I, I worked with a, another intern um, who actually had the idea of bringing out the badges. And we just wanted to work out why, like, what was the barrier? This is a simple magnetic badge. It only had our first name on it. So they've done a very good job working out, asking doctors, what do you actually want on the name badge? And they'd all agree just their first name, title as doctor, and then the hospital where they worked. But, you know, a, a, an alarming number of um, interns just weren't wearing them. And when I surveyed them, it's, it's like what you've just said. A striking proportion just didn't want the patient to know their name. And, and I, yeah. I, you know, there, there is so much in the Hello, My Name Is campaign, which, which start, obviously started in the UK, because every human encounter starts with that, whether you're it's, in hospital or you're out of hospital. Yeah. Who, who are you and what is your name? It's very basic. And <laughs> it's very basic. And I, and, you know, I think there's a lot in that, Jess, and you could probably do a whole other podcast on it about what the young doctors felt threatened by. Yeah. In having in having patients know their name, but to me, it speaks to the heart of what's gone wrong in the doctor-patient relationship, and the medical training um, survey, which is done every twelve months for the last four years by the Medical Board of Australia, was repeated this year and showed, having surveyed twenty-three thousand junior doctors across the country, um, for, you know, for, for one of the first times, the demands of patients and their families is becoming a barrier in job satisfaction and again that to me that talks about this erosion in the doctor-patient relationship which probably is occurring in other healthcare professions um, as well but it is very worrying about where we're heading yeah definitely definitely well I think you are doing an incredible step to trying to make those changes obviously it's not going to happen overnight but already those thousand copies are going to be read by all those junior doctors and that's going to be an amazing step forward, trust me. Um, I would love to ask about your personal experience of dealing with your bowel cancer diagnosis and having all your surgeries. I would love to talk to you about the nursing side of things and what your experiences, positive and negative, were um, that you experienced with nurses. Yeah, so I, I don't come from a family of healthcare providers. There's no doctors and nurses in the family, I'm very working class. And so I had no exposure to the health environment and I'd also never been sick in a big way. So I very quickly became a um, full-time patient without a lot of context or understanding of how it would work. Um, the very first, my very first phone call to the cancer hospital where, where I ended up having treatment was life-changing and it was a nurse on the other end of the line. Um, she was a, 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 a they, they kind of organized themselves by tumor stream and she was the coordinator for that for GI um, and, and her, her name was Meg she won't mind me saying that um, and, and and it felt like in that first phone call and I'd, I'd gone to another surgeon beforehand and I'd been to GPs and radiology and um, you know I'd had some pathology done and I'd been to gastroenterology and, and it all felt very transactional and procedural this phone call felt warm it felt like I was talking to Meg for the first time, it, you know, like like she, it was her first conversation with a patient. She was curious 
and she was validating and she was empathic. And I went, wow, if a busy cancer hospital can maintain this with the very first point of call, it, it must be an excellent place to get therapy. And I ended up choosing the hospital largely based on that first phone call, largely based on how I felt. And I so then I ended up having radiation and chemotherapy for six weeks. Then I had an ultra low anterior resection and a lupeoleostomy to remove the tumor. Um, I had to consent to removing lots of anatomy only which some, some had to go. Um, and then I had four months of chemotherapy and then I got pulmonary emboli at the end of that. And then I had to be anticoagulated. So I had lots of contact with nurses. Um, by and by, I felt like they kept the whole place running. <laughs> I felt like they were the soul of it. I felt yeah. like they knew what was happening. And if they didn't, they could find out uh, very professional, very attentive most of the time, um, very um, engaging. And a bit like, you you know, you, you said when the surgeons had rustled off to the next person at like 6.30 in the morning and I'd barely woken up, a nurse would sweep in. Yeah. So what questions do you actually have? What, what, <laughs> what would you like me to kind of find out? Um, so I found overall the experience was really warming. That's great to hear. Can you imagine if that first phone call was a, like a negative phone call? Like, you know, if she was mm. harsh on the phone or something like that, that your whole direction of your whole treatment could have changed. Mm, totally. So and I actually contrast this in the book with, yeah. you know, once I was working in the system, I mean, that that those first calls those people can often be quite defensive because it means more work, right? Yeah. It, you're getting another referral, you're getting another consult, you've got someone hustling you for something, you're on a busy front desk, you're on an intake line, you're in a triage service. But, uh, you know, and I've seen people like Meg out there, but, it, you know, it, I was lucky. Yeah. I was lucky that that first phone call was like that. And I've gone on to thank her deeply for that. No, oh, that's so beautiful. So that was quite an experience. And obviously you've had to talk to so many different of the multidisciplinary uh, sorry multidisciplinary team um i'm really glad to hear that nurses were such a positive experience for you during your whole diagnosis and cancer treatment what about some negative experiences because i know for a fact that sometimes you know we're a little bit we get a little bit robotic in our you know in our day-to-day -day working life and sometimes we can do things and not be aware of what it's doing to patients can you just give us like a little bit of inside knowledge about maybe some negative things that nurses did mm. during your care. Yeah. I'm, and, you know, I, and I, it was hard when writing the book because my whole thing is I don't want to single out individual healthcare providers or individual, um, you know, streams of health. So I do pick on doctors quite a bit because I'm one of them, <laughs> but I'm very careful to, you know, to not single out other healthcare workers. Um, th there was a key point when I, when I got had the ultra low anterior resection, I kind of did well for like the first three or four days. It was a huge surgery, hours and hours and hours on the table. Um, there was urology, urology were in there, um, lower, you know, colorectal were in there, um, a bunch of anesthetists. Um, the, the surgery was tricky because it's the tumor was big and it was wrapped around other anatomy and it was deep in the male pelvis. I start to heal and then I stop healing and I'm trekking all my IV poles and I've got, you know, uh, wound drains and I've still got um, weird colored sticks coming out of my penis and I'm, I've got a catheter and I've got all kinds of things in. I've got a central line. I start walking around doing laps, lots of encouragement, go Ben. 
And then I stop being able to do that and I start to feel really unwell. And it takes a little while for the team to work out what's wrong with me. It turns out that one of the anastomoses had, had split open. And I, so I'd had some contents leak into my you know peritoneal cavity and I was sick, but it took a while for my body to show that, to mount the response where I had a fever. And I felt like then that as long as you healed according to the plan, it was an excellent place to be. Everyone knew what they were doing. Everyone was focused on the goal. But once you deviate from the algorithm, so my surgery, I should have probably been in four or five days. I ended up staying four weeks. And the longer you deviate from the normal pathway, the more isolated I felt. I felt like nurses spent less time checking in with me and at, at some points even frustrated with me, there was one ward round, it was a big one. I don't even know how many people were there and I only recognized a couple of people, my surgeon and someone else. And I had been had to be put back on IV fluids. I could no longer get out of bed. I wasn't eating everything. Every time I put food to my mouth, I would dry retch and just saliva and mucus would come out. Um, it, it, was, it was an awful time and I was losing weight. I ended up losing about 12 kilos and my stoma was still spewing out like three or four liters of bright green gunk every day. I'm laying in bed, the ward rounds occurring. They're talking about something I don't understand. Someone stands forward, a woman nicely dressed and says, you need to start eating or we're putting a tube down your throat. And I was shocked and then horrified and angry, but I said nothing because I'm laying in bed feeling like crap and I've got 10 people around me in nice clothing, freshly made, it's 6.30 in the morning, and I don't know who they are. And I had a terrible fear of these tubes because I, I was in a four bed room and I had heard them go down people's throats and come back up again and go back down. I didn't really know what they were for. I had no health training, remember, but they sounded horrible. They yeah. sounded horrible. Oh, the, the the noises that come out of people is, is horrible. It's like, Bleh. Horrible, horrible. And I'd also spent the last three nights before that ward round next to a man in his 80s with advanced lung disease who come 8, 8.30 in the evening, called the doctors and begged them to kill him because of the pain he was in. And all this was happening around me at the same time as I'm getting sick. And this person stands forward and they accuse me of not eating and threatening me with a tube. Now, I know what she was trying to say. She was trying to say, your electrolytes are looking dangerous. We're, yeah. going to not, we're going to start to need to replace some of them. We really need you to try and eat. And I tried every single meal to eat. My mum even bought McDonald's, right? Cheeseburgers and fries. I still couldn't get it in. Yeah. And I, I worked out later, once the ward round had left, I asked the nurse, I said, who was that person? And it, it was the nurse unit manager. Wow. And I just realized, you know, that that person has a job. This is their workplace. I've been in the bed far too long. There's probably people waiting to come. She had forgotten I was a person. She had forgotten I was a patient. I was just a problem. And that's where it really struck home to me that, you know, our, our routine is the enemy of empathy. When we stop seeing people as people and we start seeing them as organs and problems and electrolytes to be fixed and shipped out, we lose sight of the whole person. And it wasn't that, you know, she couldn't do anything about the unfolding infection. She couldn't do anything about the man who wanted to die. I, I was exposed to trauma through the NGTs going up and down. That's all fine. But I felt like her approach made it worse, yeah. you know, and often in healthcare, it seems like we do expose the vulnerability. We do add salt into the wound when really there's so much going on for people in a hospital setting. We should be trying to minimize that and support yep. them through it as much as possible. 
Yeah. That totally, I resonated with that story so much because it's something that I've witnessed many, many Mm. times during my 10 years of nursing. And Mm. I know that I've never done that. I'm always someone Mm. who will explain things. I, I love explaining things to patients, but, you know, witnessing things like that, Oh, it always breaks my heart. And, mm. and especially the talk of, you know, well, we need the beds. We need the beds. Mm. I, that talk of like, we need to get patients out. We need to move them. Um, mm. The feeling and the way you described it in the book, I could totally, I could, I could, it was like I was in the room with you when you're explaining mm. that situation, you know, with the man with the lung cancer and, and hearing mm. all those noises and you're sleep deprived and you're sick and you're, you know, it's just a horrible situation and so vulnerable and then mm. at 6.30 in the morning, if somebody was threatening me to put a tube down my throat <laughs> without even explaining it, like that's a really yeah. confronting thing to deal with. Yeah, so, I know. And, and we didn't know each other. You know, that's yeah. fundamentally, I didn't know who this person was. I thought it was. I thought they were a doctor. I was like, yeah. this senior person is standing out. There must be a doctor. Who, yeah. who else is going to talk like that? Exactly. It's a good yeah. wake up call though, for sure. Like hearing stories like this, reading books like this, it's just a really good wake up call to remember that everyone's feeling so vulnerable and we need to get back to that human level and give, mm. give back that empathy. And that's definitely what I took away from this book. And I really enjoyed it because it's something that I like to try and practice every single day is my empathy and mm. treating people like a human, not like mm. a patient, not like a, a bed number or an organ, actually like a, a person. It's hard though, isn't it? Like, oh it, yeah, I think anyone who says it's not is lying or, or they're mm. actually not doing it. Um, it is hard. And I, I don't know about you, but like I, before each consult, before each person walks into my clinic or before each home visit, I, I have to mentally just like kind of ground myself, you know, because I was having an outrageous conversation with the social worker five minutes ago. Um, my day is going busy. I've got lots and lots of reports to write, but you kind of have to ground yourself and be like, okay, this is a, this is a new encounter. Yeah. I need to meet this person where they are. And if we're not mindful about it, you know, you're right. It just becomes a conveyor belt. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we lose touch yeah. with the people in front of us. Do you, do you have a practice that you do that, that keeps you grounded like that? I definitely take nice deep breaths before going into mm. each patient room. If I have had yep. a situation where I feel like I am worked up, I will just remove myself for five minutes and just mm. go, go have some water, go have a sit down. Mm. I'm really good at uh, talking to people about things as well if I need to escalate mm. things. I'm, I'm a talker, but I know that people, when they're not a talker, that's when they kind of mm. struggle. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I can get quite feisty when it comes to patient care. If I see something, <laughs> if I see something yeah. or I don't agree with something, like I am quite a feisty person <laughs> when mm, I'm good. like, that is that is my patient and I don't care, yeah. I will stand up for them. So that's what I do. But yeah, you definitely have to, if, if I find that I'm a little bit irritated, you know, I'm really tired and then I'm just getting a bit irritated towards the patient, mm. that's when I kind of have to take some deep breaths and kind of step outside and be like, okay, I've got to remember this patient's dealing with so much more, like so much worse things than what I'm going mm. through. If they want to yep. be annoying in my mind or, you know, mm. uh, you know, and ir- ir- irritated at me, I'm just going to take it because at the end of the day, I need to be there for them. What, what, what are some tips that you do? So good. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So I try and, um, you know, ground myself before each encounter. Um, I don't always get it right though I, I had a consult recently with a, um, a man who's currently in the middle of an agitated depression and you know I'd done a standardized checklist and he, he was improving symptom wise and he looked better you know we'd started a medication and he looked better and I, I kind of got 
excited by that. Um, and he very quickly reminded me that this was no laughing matter. And so I don't, you know, I was, I was having a joke with his wife about how, how well he was doing, but how he couldn't tell yet. And it would take a little bit longer for him to realize. And I thought that kind of going in with that uplifting spirit, lots of optimism, you know, might kind of, you know, help reassure him that he's feeling better. But he, he was very upset with the tone. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge, like you've just done, that we are people and we do make mistakes. And, and part of the reason I called it the patient doctor, which is a bit cheeky because everyone's a patient at some point, right? We're all, every doctor is a patient, every nurse is a patient, is um, I wanted patients to understand that about us. You know, that we, we, we do have a lot going on. It's not an excuse for bad behavior or crappy care, but it helps them understand that there's a person with feelings and thoughts on the other side of that consultation. So I, I keep all of this front of mind, you know, each and every time I approach a patient. That's so good. So we're not looking at patients as just a patient, we're looking at them as a human, but also a doctor is not just a busy doctor, they're also a human at the end of the day. I would as love is the to. Nurse. <laughs> exactly, and the nurse, yeah. everyone in yeah. the team. Um, before we conclude this amazing episode, I would love to know what, what are you doing now? What's, what's going on in Ben Bravery's life? <laughs> Oh, gosh. So I'm a registrar um, in Southeast Sydney training in psychiatry. So I actually went to medical school to become a medical oncologist, but got a bit disappointed in a lot of the subspecialties. And I found my, my, my people in psychiatry. Now, it's not perfect, but it still has a handle on the whole person. Um, we slow things down a little bit. We spend a bit more time understanding what's important to people, what their values are, what, what their goals are, what kind of treatment they do and don't want um so so i'm fourth i'm five years out of medical school i'm three years into my registrar training um at the same time i'm doing a master's of psychiatry i'm quite busy with the book so the the book i'm speaking at lots of conferences more and more um i'm at the a medical um, imaging and radiation therapy conference next week then there's a palliative care conference a couple of weeks after that um th there's lots happening because there's lots of people that get what you and i are saying they get it and they know that voices like ours are important to keep the momentum up. Um, I've got a, a two and a half year old, um, a little boy who, who keeps me quite busy. Um, I'm married to Sana. Um, and so, so, you know, that's another role in my life. And I think that that's kind of enough at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't think you can squeeze any more into, into your life at the moment. <laughs> no, not at oh. all. Well, you're doing an incredible job fitting everything in and trying to have a well-balanced life, you know, being a husband, being a father, being a doctor, studying and also giving back to the community of health by speaking at these conferences and giving us a bit of a wake-up call. So I appreciate it and I'm sure everyone else appreciates it. And we can't wait for everyone that's listening to this podcast to go online and buy a copy of The Patient Doctor and let us know what you think because it, it definitely hit home for me and I really, yeah, I really appreciated everything that you wrote in this book and the vulnerability that you shared as being a patient and and going through that whole journey as well because that was wild to go through in your late mm -hmm. 20s, that type of diagnosis. That's wow. Yeah, it was it was huge and it it's taken and will take a long time for that to settle. I think it takes a long time for that kind of treatment and diagnosis to really settle down. And I'm still working things out, right? Yeah. I mean, we all are, but, you know, I'm still working things out. Well, you're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much for coming on for the Health of It podcast with me today. Thank you so much, Jess. <laughs> all right. Bye, guys. <laughs>